Gospel of Mark. We're continuing our series uh, called Amazed, where we are learning about Jesus and how amazing He is, and, and as we behold Him in, in all that He is, uh, there's a call in Mark to follow. And really, that's what this series is about, being amazed by Jesus and being compelled to follow Him. Last week, we looked at how Jesus came to the disciples by uh, the Sea of Galilee, and He called them to follow Him, and they left everything to follow Jesus because of who He is. Uh, he is someone that can compel us in that way. And they left everything, and they followed Him, and Jesus promised to make them fishers of men. For when you follow Jesus, you become like Jesus. This week, I want to continue in the story uh, where we're going to look in verses 21 through 34 of Jesus' early ministry. And it's really a, a delight for me to be back here in the pulpit after my knee surgery. I'm so glad to be speaking on this section of Scripture. I might have to sit on that stool for a little bit, uh, just so you know. Um, but my knee is working, and it's just great to be here preaching God's Word. And when we look at God's Word together... Um, it's important for us to recognize that it's more than just studying something. When we come together in His name to look at His Word, we are looking to encounter God Himself. And we talked about that in our first part of worship. We don't just come together to talk about God. We don't just come together to, because we have an affinity or we believe some of the same things. We come together uh, in His name and He shows up. Uh, and He shows up in the worship of God's people. He shows up in the preaching of His Word. And so... Pretty much every Sunday, we pray and ask him to show up. You know, if you, uh, if you went to an Andrea Bocelli concert, and you went there, and, and, and all that was there were people talking about Andrea Bocelli, like how great he is, and they played some of his music and stuff, you'd be somewhat disappointed, would you not? You go there, you want to see Andrea Bocelli sing. You want to hear him. And really, when we come together on Sunday, that's what it's about. We're coming to hear God sing. We're coming to hear God speak to us. We're coming to encounter His presence, and, and that's so important for us to remember, and it's important as we come before His Word to remember that's what it's about. Certainly, I'm going to do the best I can to explain His Word, to, to communicate the truths that are there, but there's an aspect of what I do and what we do that's far beyond just the, the ability to teach or to explain or even proclaim. There's the aspect of God Himself speaking through His Word, using fallible humans to, to proclaim His perfect truth. And so let's pray, because we want God to be here in our midst as we hear His Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, You are glorious and great, and being in Your presence is better than being at any concert, better than doing anything else. And we come on Sundays, Lord, together in Your name, because we hunger for You, and we need You, and You are gracious, O oh God, to show up to, to manifest your presence, to show your truth, to change our lives, to empower us, to make us more like you, and then use us to go out and bless others. So we thank you for it, for that. And we ask you now, as, as we look at your word, would you, would you speak to us? Would you show up? Would you be here? Would you help me to serve you in this, Lord? I just want to do a good job, and I just kind of want to fade in the background um, that they might hear from you. You yourself, Jesus, and we just thank you. This is your intent, and your word tells us this is, this is what it is to meet in your name, and so we can pray with expectation. We ask you to bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word and the listening of your word today, and you would be magnified, and your kingdom would come, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 
Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 21, reading through verse 34. This is Jesus' early part of his ministry. And it says in verse 21, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. God's word, Mark chapter 1. What a wonderful Story, what a wonderful account of Jesus' early ministry. He's just started at this point in his ministry in the region of Galilee. Galilee is a, is a province north of Jerusalem, the capital. And he is in Galilee. He's teaching about the kingdom of God. He's teaching truths about God's kingdom with, with fresh and powerful and authoritative insights. He's doing that in the synagogues. He's doing that out in the open. He's doing that with the disciples as he goes along the way. And everywhere he goes, he's also demonstrating the reality of the kingdom of God through him, through what he does, through miracles, through deliverance from demons, through healings, and so forth. He's declaring and he's demonstrating this. And really, this is captured in this story. We, we see here Jesus in action, declaring and demonstrating teaching and healing and delivering. And this section of Scripture, really all of, all of the Gospel of Mark is here, not just so we could look at a story and think, wow, that's really cool, it's kind of amazing what goes on. It's more than that. This is put before us as a, as a picture of Jesus with an implicit invitation. It comes with an invitation. It says, look at who He is, consider who He is, and just like the disciples, come and follow Him. Come and put your faith in Him. Come and put your faith in the one who rules over truth, who rules over demons, who rules over sickness. Come and follow him. 
so that's what I want to do. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about how he rules over these three things we see in this passage, how he rules over truth, how he rules over demons, how he rules over sickness. First, he rules over truth. Jesus comes into Capernaum, and this is a, a small city on the Sea of Galilee, uh, probably Peter's, well, we know Peter's house was there. It's his hometown. It's where he lived. It's about 1,000 to 2,000 people who live there. And on the Sabbath, he goes into the synagogue. He goes into the synagogue. Uh, and, and the Sabbath was a special time during the week. It started Friday night at sundown and ended Saturday at sundown. And it was, according to the Scripture, a time for them to come together and rest from their work and to worship God together. And they would come and they would meet in these synagogues. A synagogue just basically means a gathering. And it's very similar, actually, to what a modern Christian church would be. Uh, they would have, if they could afford it, uh, they would have a building. Uh, and in this city, they had their own synagogue, a building where they gathered together. But the synagogue was more than just the building. It was actually the group of people because it was people who came together who decided to live under the authority of God together and walk through life together, much like a church. And, and actually, they had uh, leaders in the synagogue. They would have uh, the chief of the synagogue. They would have other officers. And, and it was very actually very similar to what the church is. As a matter of fact, many scholars believe that that the church and idea of the church uh, is derived, at least in part, from how the synagogue functioned. So it was basically church. And Jesus came into the synagogue. He came into this local synagogue, and they would, uh, they would have someone read the Scriptures, then they would invite someone who was a learned person in the Word, trusted person in the Word, to speak and comment about the Scriptures. So Jesus comes into the synagogue and, and he's there teaching. Now we don't know exactly what he taught, at least in this instance. He probably would have taught from the scriptures. He would have reflected from what was read and instructed them on that. And he did that. And, and we, again, we don't know the content, but we do know the results. When they listened to Jesus, they were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching. It was unlike anything they had heard. And it says, for, this is the reason why they're astonished, for he taught them as one who had authority. Not like the scribes. He taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The scribes were a group of people who were scribes. They were people who wrote down things. They got that name because their job, uh, part of their job was to, to copy the scriptures. They would make copies of the scriptures for use. And, um, but they did more than that. They, were, they would study the Scriptures. They knew the Scriptures well, and, and uh, they would devote their lives to studying and to teaching the Scriptures. Some of them uh, were good enough at that that they were actually able to form disciples uh, who, they would, uh, who would decide to follow them and would help pay for them, and they would live off the money that they were paid. Others did it part-time and worked jobs. Most of them uh, were Pharisees, Part of the Pharisees, there were some non-Pharisaical scribes as well. And they were men, they were men who taught, and they would be people who would be asked to teach in a synagogue because they knew the Scriptures. But Jesus' teaching is dramatically different from the scribes' teaching. Let me tell you a little bit about what their, the scribes' teaching was like, perhaps. Certainly they would, they would teach from the Word, but what had happened at that point in history uh, among the people of God, 
uh, not necessarily true for everybody, but there was this change in how they handled the Word of God. You see, God's people had been exiled for their sin, and they had come back. God had brought them back from exile. They had broken their covenant with God. They had disobeyed Him in many ways. And and when they came back, there was this uh, move, this desire to make sure that that never happened again, that there would never be another exile, that they never would be cast away from the land and from God's presence. And it started with men like Ezra and others who, who studied the Word. He probably was the first scribe type of person. But then it evolved over time that they started to develop this whole system of obeying the law that was very strict and very detailed. And the desire in that, having all these extra rules upon rules upon rules, was to, was to basically safeguard them from ever disobeying the commands of God again. Particularly the Sabbath was one of them, that they, uh, God had told them to keep the Sabbath holy. And if you read in Scripture, they were exiled in part because they desecrated the Sabbath. Now, if you read the whole story, you'll understand and read, read Jesus' teaching on it, that the point when God said that was you know, that you didn't do this little detail or not. It was that they had cast away the whole heart of what the Sabbath was about. They no longer lived to rest in God's presence to live to worship Him. They had rejected God and thus rejected the Sabbath. So the, the point wasn't whether they followed this minutia of detail on the Sabbath or not. But what had happened is they had started to think, the scribes and others, that really the, the way that we can maintain God's favor is by making sure we obey the commands, we obey these Sabbath commands. And the best way to do that is to make all these extra rules so we never ever get to the point where we, we would do anything that would desecrate the Sabbath. That was the sort of teaching that they had. And so when they taught, they would perhaps go into these sort of details about rules upon rules. And it got really ridiculous. And, and by the way, when you try to come up with a system to earn God's favor or to maintain God's favor, because they actually believed that they, were, they belonged to God as His chosen people by grace, but they stayed His people by being good. It's interesting, Christians can do the same thing. They say, I get in by grace, but now that I'm a Christian, I have to maintain this level of obedience to keep God's favor. Now, God cares about our holiness. I'm not saying that that's not unimportant, but that's not how you maintain God's favor. Favor comes as a, as a gift, and holiness flows from a response to that favor. Lord, I love you, and I don't want to do anything to separate myself from you, but I know it's all a gift. But when you fall into legalism, you think that your performance merits God's favor. You think that somehow you can be good enough that you force the hand of God to be good to you, and that's ridiculous. You can never do that. And what will happen is if you have that mindset, you'll come up with more and more minutia, more and more details of what you should and shouldn't do to somehow maintain God's favor. Listen to some of the details for the scribes. They taught that the Sabbath was a holy time to rest. Indeed, it it was. And our Sabbath ultimately is in Jesus we find our rest. But for a Jew under the Mosaic Covenant, there was this day uh, where they called in obedience to rest and to not work. They taught that, but they came up with laws to make sure you didn't work at all. So they actually had detailed laws like this, that you could not carry anything on the Sabbath that was heavier than an olive or a fig. Okay? That was the limit up to the weight of an olive or a fig. If you carried more than that, you were disobeying the Sabbath. You were desecrating the Sabbath. And then they came up with details like this, that if you ate something carried that was heavier than an olive or a fig that was carried on the Sabbath, it was put on your plate and you ate it, you sin by eating it. But if you ate half of it, 
it was okay because it took the full weight. You had to eat the whole weight. But if you ate half of it and then spit it up and then ate it again, that was too much because it was two halves makes a whole. You can't do that. That's disobeying the Sabbath. That's actual uh, scribal commentary on obeying the Sabbath. Jesus comes on the scene. And he turns the tables. He turns the tables upside down. He changes their orientation in regards to their relationship with God. And he speaks with authority. He is not commenting on minutia. He's not saying, if you do this detail, you'll be good with God. He's pointing them to himself. I am the fulfillment. Come to me. Listen to some of his teaching. Matthew chapter 11. I think that we have this to project Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, come to me. Stop worrying about olives and figs. Come to me and learn from me and take my yoke. Upon you, not the yoke of the law, the, the yoke of the scribes, it's just gonna drive you into the ground. But my yoke, I get in this yoke next to you and I carry it with you, and this yoke is easy and my burden is light because it's with me. Come to me. He's pointing to himself, he's speaking with authority, he's declaring the truth as God himself. And he's not saying, Look to self effort, he's saying, Look to me. Mark chapter 10, another teaching. There's loads of teaching in the New Testament from Jesus. Really, the whole Bible is from him. And it says in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45, and Jesus called to them, them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now listen to how he takes that, that radical call, and he grounds it not in your ability, not in yourself, but in who? Himself. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the call to be a servant is grounded in that Jesus himself is the ultimate servant who has come to serve and to, to be the ultimate slave, to give his life away as a ransom, as a payment for you. For we know he went to the cross, he died, he shed his blood to pay for sins as a ransom for your sin, to free you. He came and he laid his life down for you. And in receiving that and living in that, now you have power to turn around and lay your life down for others. That's a totally different sort of teaching than figs and olives. And so Jesus comes into the synagogue and teaches this way, points to himself, proclaims mercy and grace in himself, and a radical life of holiness and new life grounded in him and his life in us and through us. His teaching is unlike any other because he himself is unlike any other. There is no one like Jesus. Let me ask you something. Do you need to hear more of Jesus' sort of teaching? Do you need to hear more of his teaching than other teaching? Are you listening to his teaching more than other teachings? 
Are you taking time to just read the Word and meditate on it? He invites us to hear from Him. His words are life. And they're unlike any other words that are out there. There's lots of books out there, and there's lots of good books. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I love to read. I read lots, and I encourage you to read lots. But there are different types of teaching out there. And his teaching, and teaching based on his teaching, doesn't point to self-help. It doesn't point to self-esteem. It doesn't point to self-determination. It points to Jesus. And when we put our faith in him, when we read his teaching, we're directed to him. And that is where there's power for true esteem. That is where there's power for true help. That is where there's power for true right living in him, grounding in him, not in self-esteem, self-determination, self-help. And do you need to spend more time in his teaching? He invites you to. And, and it doesn't have to be burdensome. There's loads of ways to do it. I could come up with many ways. For us as a church, we have small groups. We call them care groups uh, that meet regularly. And, and part of the reason for those groups is to come together around his word and to, to, to kind of just spend time in that teaching and talk about it and have it change our lives. We have uh, growth groups we run downstairs on Sundays where, uh, before our time together. We are doing an Old Testament survey. There's self-study. There's books in the library you can grab to study the Word on your own. And I encourage you to get with some friends and study the Word. We would love to help you with resources if you need help. Or it can just be the simply this, and this is, I think, a great starting place. Just take five minutes every day. Five minutes. Take five minutes just to read something in the New Testament and pray and ask God to teach you about it, to teach you about Jesus. His teaching is unlike any other. And just as they were astonished in that synagogue, as you spend time in His Word and hear from Him, you will be astonished too. And you'll see your life changed. Well, the next part of the story is really amazing what goes on. It's both amazing and horrifying uh, because Jesus teaches and His teaching is uh, with authority, unlike the scribes. And, and as a result of him being there, we don't know all the details. There is this man with an unclean spirit who, who cries out. He cries out in the synagogue. I mean, it, it apparently interrupts Jesus and cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This demon, this unclean spirit speaks through this man. And there's this confrontation Jesus has with this demon. It's important for us to understand uh, what's going on here. Because it's perhaps bizarre by at least some modern standards. What is going on? What's an unclean spirit? The scripture teaches us that, that these unclean spirits are, are called demons. They are fallen angels. God in his creation had made uh, many beings. He made us but he also made angels. These, uh, the word for angel basically means messenger. They're, they're messengers of God. They're servants of God and God's people. He created uh, lots of them, probably millions and millions of them, maybe even billions and billions of them. Uh, and these are spiritual beings. And as we read the rest of Scripture, we'll, we learn that, that some of these, a portion of these uh, angels, fell from God. They rebelled against God, and their leader was Satan. The, the, one of the chief angels fell with them and they were cast away from God's presence and they were corrupted by evil. And they have a degree of, of latitude in God's creation to 
wreak havoc. They are enemies of God and enemies of His people. They are bent on destroying those made in the image of God and opposing God's will. They're real. And they work. They're evil. Now, God is in control. This isn't duality. It isn't that the angels are equal with, the demons are equal with God at all. They are under God. God allows them to have some degree of latitude. And we see in Scripture that they do wreak havoc. They oppose God. They afflict God's people. They demonize. They afflict uh, those made in His image. The connections seem to be, uh, Jesus talks about elsewhere, about basically uh, if you don't repent, if you're delivered from a demon and don't repent, you basically are allowing it to come back in. So there's a connection between repentance and faith and being free from demons. And, and there's a connection uh, historically and in, in Scripture between those who would give themselves to very serious sins and the occult and false religions and those who would be demonized. When you do that, when you do those sort of things, you open yourself up to being exploited by demons. Demons can get a foothold in your life. And if you continue in it, they can, they can continue to afflict you to the point where, where you would be what we would call demonized. Now, older translations use the word demon possession. Actually, that's not a good translation of what the, the word in Greek is. The better translation is demon afflicted or demonized. Because ultimately, a demon cannot possess a person uh, you always retain some degree of, of, of self-control and will. But it can afflict someone. And when that affliction is very serious, it can seem like possession because it's so overwhelming. But a demon can afflict, and a demon can afflict a believer, and a demon can afflict an unbeliever. Now, we have all the weapons we need in Christ, and no demon can invade us as, as bearers of the Holy Spirit, but they can afflict. And demonization is very common in the New Testament, and it is common in the world. Now, it's not as common. We don't see it as much here. And I don't know all the reasons why. I think perhaps part of it is just the grace of God in our country that there isn't the same level of occult and really deep, serious sins, deep, serious sexual sins and other sort of sins that seem to be connected to these sort of, to demonization. It's out there, but not at the level that it is in other cultures, perhaps, or historically it's been elsewhere. But it also might just be that in our culture, they are, do a good job of hiding behind our explanations because we're an anti-supernatural culture. And so we don't want to see a supernatural reason for things. So we come up with other explanations. Those are perhaps reasons we don't see it. But if you go in other parts of the country and, and you look historically, this is a common thing, demons. Matter of fact, the early church at one point, it was standard be practice that when someone was preparing for baptism, they, were, they underwent exorcism, they underwent uh, deliverance ministry to a person, everybody, because the culture was so saturated in the occult and so saturated in, in deep immorality and false religions, false gods, that it was just better to assume that a new believer had a demon afflicting them, so just to do deliverance. Uh, actually, I think I have a quote from an, an early manual, uh, Apostolic Tradition of Hippolytus, and uh, it says this, this is, this is instruction for baptismal candidates. Moreover, from the day they are chosen, let a hand be laid on them and let them be exercised daily. And when the day draws near on which they are to be baptized, let the bishop himself exercise each one of them, that he may be certain that he is purified. But if there is one who is not purified, let him be put 
on one side because he did not hear the word of instruction with faith, for the evil and strange spirit remained with him. That was standard practice. Everybody went through deliverance ministry. Now, again, the culture was different, but I think we may see a day when we need to resume this as standard practice as our culture drifts and people get into the occult and get into things. It just might be better to assume there's some sort of demonic affliction. We don't have to go hunting for demons, by the way, okay? And we're not going to do that. Scripture doesn't tell us to try to find a demon behind every problem. The times in Scripture when there's, when there's deliverance is when there's an obvious manifestation. Um, but nevertheless, we can still pray for people. Uh, we can still ask for, for peace and for protection. And where we see it manifest, we, we will need to deal with demons, I have seen some degree of this myself. Perhaps you have as well. I, I don't have extensive experience with it, but I've also talked with other reliable people who have dealt with this. And the, what we see in this story actually parallels very much what, what I've seen, what others have seen. The same sort of thing of, of someone being greatly afflicted, greatly in turmoil, uh, sometimes uh, convulsing and retching and then command given. Uh, different, Jesus commands the demon directly. We command demons as God's people in his name. And I've seen that happen and I've seen things come out of people. And victory. And that's the, the, the story. The bottom line here is not to, not to get into, you know, wow, that's wild. Tell me more about that. Pastor Paul, uh, the, the bottom line is that Jesus, the name of Jesus is powerful. The demons cannot stand before him. The name of Jesus, we have the victory and demons have to flee. And the name of Jesus is no match for any demon, no matter how terrible they may seem. So I want you to, to know that. And, and if you are someone who, who wonders, maybe there's something going on in my life. I want you to know that the name of Jesus is more powerful than any demonic Affliction. Now, when you're in it, it can feel awful. You can feel overwhelmed. You can feel like, wow, there's just no escape here. That's just a, just a bold lie from the enemy. Jesus brings victory over demons. And when you cry out to him and when you're prayed for, there is deliverance. He will work. He will deliver. So if you are in a place where you've been struggling, maybe there's, maybe there's just stuff you've seen. You're just a strong sense of being overwhelmed, a strong sense of despair. Maybe you have heard voices, even audibly or just in your mind, that have told you evil things or to do evil things. And you haven't been able to shake that. That could be demonic affliction. And I would love to pray for you. Maybe you have a background. If you've dabbled in the occult, maybe you've been deep into the occult. I would just assume if you have been into the occult, get prayed for, just like the early church, assuming with, with everybody that there was some sort of demonic affliction. If you've been into the occult, if you've been deeply and habitually into very serious sexual sins, have someone pray for you. I would love to pray for you and pray God's peace and protection. And if there's anything, we'll, we'll command it in Jesus' name and it will flee. It will flee. Jesus comes to rule, and he does rule over the demons. That's the point of the story here. He comes to bring deliverance and victory, to demonstrate that he rules over all. He not only teaches with authority, but he acts with authority. And when he tells the demon to shut up and leave, it shuts up and it leaves. That's the point of the story. That's so that we would come to him and put our faith in Jesus. The final thing that he has authority over is sickness. What an experience it must have been like to be 
Peter and Andrew, James and John, following along with Jesus. They're, they're early on in this whole thing. They haven't seen a whole lot. Can you imagine what it was like? You're just, you're just observing Jesus do these things. You're, you're, you're sitting there with his teaching, and you probably just think, I just want to hear this all day long. Continue. But then there's this manifestation of the demon, and Jesus commands the demon, it flees, and then it's time to leave the synagogue, and they go out to, uh, together, and they go into Peter's house. And I'm so glad that this part of the story is here. They come into the house, and Peter's mother-in-law is lying down with a fever. Most likely, she doesn't have any great sickness, maybe a virus, I don't know, a flu, something minor. And I'm so glad that this is part of the story because after what's happened with this dramatic scene where Jesus commands the demon and it goes out, one could think that Jesus is only interested in helping you if you've got a major problem. That, you know, he, he just, it's the big things. If you've got demons, you know, to be driven out or if you need to be raised from the dead, yeah, I'll help. But the little things, uh, come on, don't bother Jesus. Little, you, got, you got a little cold or virus uh, mom, you know, just don't bother Jesus. But that's not who he is. There's no problem too big, and there's no problem too small for Jesus. And they tell Jesus about Peter's mother-in-law, and he goes to her, and he grabs her by the hand in tenderness and kindness and raises her up, and the fever goes. She's on her feet. She's healed. And like so often happens, when, when someone encounters grace and healing and new life, the, their desire is now to go serve. And so she serves. She gets up. Isn't that a wonderful part of the story? She's healed. And now she's up. She's, now I'm free. I'm free to serve. And she spends her time serving those in the home. No problem is too big for Jesus. No problem is too small for Jesus. Do you have a problem that you think is too small for Jesus? You need to know that just as he cared for Peter's mother-in-law, he cares for you. The scripture tells us that he numbers the hairs on our head. Anyone know how many hairs are on their head? Some of us might not have to count as far as others. I, I, I'm, about, I'm about half the number I used to be, I think. You have about 100,000 hairs on your head. If you have a full head of hair. I maybe got 40,000 maybe at this point, but... Um, I, can, I noticed some years ago when I combed my hair, if there was light behind me, I could see the light through my hair for the first time. I was missing some follicles there. But God numbers all the hairs on your head. Every single one of them, He knows. That's in Scripture, not just because it's, well, that's cool, you know, 100,000, you know, thing. No, it's to communicate that God cares about the finest details and knows about the greatest details in your life. And when you... When you won't take your small problems to him, in a sense, it's an insult to God saying, God, you don't care about this, but he does. He cares about the finest details. So what are your small problems you need to bring to Jesus? Maybe it's a small and persistent sickness you need to ask him for healing for. Ask. He heals. He moves that way. Sometimes he allows the sickness to continue, but he'll meet you and give you strength to endure it. And refine you in it. He wants to meet you in that. He wants you to come with prayers for those small things, no matter how small they may be. He's a gracious God who heals, who cares. You are to cast your cares upon Him 
because he cares for you. That is really a, a command. Cast your cares on him, all of them, because he cares for you. He numbers the hairs on your head. He cares about Peter's mother-in-law. He cares for you. Put your faith in Jesus. Well, the story continues. The sun goes down. It's the end of the Sabbath. He's in the home. And now they are free because it's the end of the Sabbath to walk about and to carry things bigger than figs and so forth. So they show up at the door of Peter's house. Who shows up at the door of Peter's house? All who were sick or oppressed by demons, the whole city was gathered at the door. The whole city. Maybe a thousand people gathered at the door waiting for Jesus. And Jesus is just at that point, he's been working all day. He says, folks, just take a ticket. I'll see you in the morning. He doesn't. He heals a couple people. He goes to bed. He heals a handful of people. He heals many people. Many people. Not a few, not some, but many. What, why do we use many? Well, many is when we're tired of counting. You know, we'll count 10, we'll count 5, maybe 20. Many is just beyond. We're tired of counting. That's how many people are healed and delivered from demons. And so Jesus continues to manifest the kingdom of God, to demonstrate the kingdom of God, that he has come to give us victory over sickness and victory over demonic affliction and victory in him. He demonstrates that through healing, through driving out the demons, through being there into the night, ministering to person after person after person. This is Jesus. This is what he's like. This is why he's come, to bring the kingdom, to deliver us, to bring us healing, to bring us deliverance from evil. This Jesus in Mark is the Jesus that has died and risen and now lives and rules and reigns and works. The fullness of the healing, the fullness of the deliverance comes at the end of all things. It's to be experienced now in part. Most significantly, it's not actually deliverance from demons, as, as important as that is, and as much as the Lord values delivering people from demonic oppression. It's not just deliverance from sickness. There's a more important deliverance. There's a more important healing that he wants for you. Greater than the affliction from demons, greater than the affliction from sickness, is the affliction from what the Bible calls sin. This, this just insane disposition that's in our hearts, that, that works its way in actions, this disposition to, to rebel against God, to not believe Him. That's really where it starts. And it's just insane. We don't believe Him. And yet the evidence for His goodness is all around us in creation. The evidence for His goodness is right there in Scripture, that He gave His only Son, that we should not be condemned but have eternal life. And yet there's this insane disposition. We, we say, no, we don't, we don't believe it. We want to do our own thing. We want to find our happiness elsewhere. We want to make our lives what we want them to be without regard for God. And we run our own way into what's called sin. Sin is, is anything we do without faith. It's anything we do without looking to the Lord. And it, it, and it works itself out in all sorts of ways. Some of us, you know what sin is and you know how bad it can be because you have walked down the path to do some things that are awful, that have harmed those around you. You know. But others who can be in more danger than the ones who have done the obvious sins are the ones who have done the subtle sins and think that they're okay when in their heart it's just as dark. 
They're just as in rebellion against God. They want to establish their own righteousness. I want, God, I want to earn my way to heaven. I want to earn what I get. I don't want handouts. That's just as dark and black as the person who turns the other way into harmful things. And there's this crazy, insane disposition we have in our hearts, and we need to be rescued from it. And we can't do it on our own. The the teaching of the scribes does not work. Not carrying figs and olives doesn't help us. We need something better than that. And Jesus points to himself. For the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He went to the cross to bear your sins. Your sins. He went to that cross. He he died on that cross to to receive the just penalty for your sins, for my sins. God's holy. Sin is evil, great evil. And God must, in justice, punish it. There must be consequences. And Jesus took on Himself the consequences of your sin. The holy wrath, the justice of God was poured out on Jesus and He died bearing your sins if you would turn to Him. And he paid for them in full. He died for your sins, but then he was raised on the third day, alive forevermore for your justification, for your your forgiveness, for your being, being able to be declared totally forgiven. And when you trust in Christ, you're forgiven and you're united with him. And his resurrection is a guarantee of your resurrection, that there will be a day when you go to be with him and your body is made new and a new creation, just as his body was made new and rose from the grave. You will rise never to be sick again, never to be afflicted, it again, never to struggle again, but to find life in Him. That ultimate deliverance came through His death and His resurrection. And He offers that to you right now. Whether it's for the first time or the 500th time, it's the same for all of us. Maybe you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus. You're really no different than us. Now, we may have put our faith in Jesus earlier, and we belong to him, and and all you need to do is simply say, Jesus, I trust you. I want to follow you, not my own way. I'm sorry for my sins. Just a simple prayer like that. I would love to pray with you if you're interested in praying. But it's really no different than, than all of us here because every day we need to do the same thing. We need to turn from self, self effort. We need to turn from our sin and say, Jesus, forgive me. I come before you. Now, when you put your faith in him, you are made into that family. You'll never, never be driven out of that family. So there's an assurance we have in that. We don't pray that prayer to somehow get back in the family, but we pray that prayer as sons and daughters, beloved, resting in Jesus and what he's done for us and finding in that fresh life, fresh power, fresh zeal, if you're a believer and you, you, you need to do that every day, living in what he's done for us, living in his death and his resurrection, living in this one who is unlike any other. So as the band comes up and we close today, just want to encourage you to put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus for healing. Put your faith in Jesus for deliverance. Put your faith in Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life in him. Put your faith in Him afresh today if you're a believer. Put your faith in Him for the first time if you haven't yet. 
Be like my friend, our friend Marianne. Marianne was someone we knew. Uh, Marianne and her husband, Bob, came to Alpha. They came to the Alpha program. The Alpha program is just a great uh, course on the basics of Christianity, the core truths. And Marianne and Bob came to Alpha. Marianne came with a serious tumor, two glomus tumors on her neck, one in her thyroid, one at the other side of her neck. And they were very serious and large tumors, and, and they taught on healing. They taught about Jesus' healing. And so Mary Ann came up to be prayed for, and they prayed for Jesus to heal her. And you know what happened? Jesus healed her. <laughs> the tumors went away. They, they melted away. And more important than that, though, Marianne's reservations about trusting and following Jesus melted away with the tumor. And she gave her heart to the Lord, and along with her husband and her whole family, and they were part of one of our small groups in our church that I, I served in. Come like Marianne today, with whatever it might be, a small thing, a big thing. Jesus comes. He's unlike any other. He comes to heal. He comes to deliver. He comes to teach. He comes to ask us to come follow him. Come follow him today. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Jesus. There's none like you. Thank you for your word and how you teach us about yourself there. Now I ask by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you speak to us and call us afresh to follow and to find in you all that we need.